0: From Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, this is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Colin Marshall, sitting down today with Attica Locke, novelist and screenwriter. She's written, first of all, we want to mention the novels. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books. She's written two thrillers that happen in... They take place in Houston. They take place on a Louisiana plantation. They take place in places where the threads of American history converge. And You know, thriller, I use that word... Do you approve of that word
1: i 'll take it yes <laughs> I, I think it 's apt i mean i think it it 's fitting. Uh, I know there's a lot of, um, or there can be a lot of chatter about, or rather hierarchical thinking about genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Isabella Allende got into some trouble um, a couple of weeks back when she talked about her new novel is a mystery ripper, I think it's called, and she kind of flippantly in an interview said she wrote it as a joke mm-hmm. and didn't really you know know the genre that well. And and I think what that, and do I really think Isabella Allende deeply does anything as a joke? No. Mm-hmm. But what I think it speaks to is, um, the fact that people kind of sometimes will say mystery thriller pejoratively. Um, but I own it. I mean, it, it kind of is, they are written to thrill. They are tales to be told over, you know, at a bar, or they're, they're meant to be something you would tell around a campfire, so to speak.
0: Now, these two books, Blackwater Rising and The Cutting Season, as I mentioned, that one's, one is in Houston, the other is on a Louisiana plantation. And I mentioned these places here in the context of California, where we hear, I think, honestly... Growing up in California or the West Coast, you know, we think plantation equals, well, that's a place where, that's a bad place where slaves worked. That's all we know about plantations. What, what, do you, what can you say to expand the, expand the definition of plantation, especially for the purposes of a book like yours?
1: Well, my book, take, The Cutting Season, takes place really in present day. It's 2009, and it's shortly after the election of Barack Obama. And what I was doing with that book was looking at the whole world of historical tourism and how the narrative of American history gets... Um, who gets to own it? How does it get presented? Um, How do we consume that history? Um, A lot of these plantations across the South, Georgia and South Carolina, and there's a ton of them in Louisiana, really are engaging in commerce. Right, and this this is
0: something we don't necessarily know about in California, that there's plantations you can go to that are kept historical actors playing many roles, slaves and otherwise. I almost didn't believe it at first. And then I realized, oh, these are real places. You know, it's not that it was not believable in your book, but I hadn't been to one of these, but they're real.
1: They, they're very real. But, you know, my editor, I think, had a similar reaction. Oh. She's a black woman, but born and raised in L.A. and has been in New York for um, maybe 30 years, my editor of that book. And I think she... Thought, no
0: roots in the South, then?
1: <laughs> no, no. And I think she thought I had made some of this up, you know. But, but it, my fictitious plantation is called Bellevue. And they have school tours and weddings and a gift shop and tchotchkes that you can walk away with. It's based on a real place. There's a place called Oak Alley Plantation in Vacherie, Louisiana, where I went to a wedding. And that place has a restaurant, a B and B, a gift shop. You can see people walking the grounds licking ice cream cones.
0: An actual people dressed as historical roles, as slaves, as... I mean, what are the... You you mentioned, of course, in the book, the roles the actors have to play. The troupe of actors are important characters. But, you know, who do you see wandering around these places?
1: Well, yes, you see the people who are dressed up, who open doors for you. But otherwise, it's just tourists. And I think that Southerners in particular... Because we live with that iconography around us all the time, there's kind of like a casualness about it. I remember um, telling someone in Louisiana where I was staying, because I went and stayed on this plantation. And they said, oh, we had our anniversary dinner there. I mean, it's just kind of like a place.
0: Right. After Um, reading your book, I'm not surprised. Before I would have been. I I think I read you mention in some other context that in the South, the word plantation is used to brand many different things. Plantation, this plantation, that, which in California is like... Ooh. <laughs> i mean it 's the word has such negative connotations here as just being well that 's a terrible place from the south where the, that they had before the war
1: no people very unironically call their subdivision you know oakwood plantation or it is this kind of word that they um, that Southerners use to call up um, you know, a time that I guess there's this lingering pride in. It was very uncomfortable to grow up around it as a person of color. So anyway, I was when I had to go to this wedding, I was just completely fascinated. And I don't think I would have wanted to write a book or that particular book uh, in the past. I was very interested in how history gets presented in the present day.
0: You've mentioned elsewhere that you didn't want to write another book about what it meant to be enslaved, I mean, meaning what meaning meaning you would be repeating what that has already been said.
1: It is not so much that I think that I would be repeating what has been said, as I feel that we need to balance stories about the past with stories that deeply deal with racial issues in the present. It, here's how I feel about fiction. I think fiction's power as a social, uh, as an instrument of social justice, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, almost unparalleled. Um, that it is the medium that allows us to sit in someone's psyche. And the more that we have stories that normalize uh, present-day Black American life or let people into it, I will go so far as to say that it's by doing things like that. um, The Jordan Davis trial is weighing heavily on me and has been for a while, because I actually think that Michael Dunn really believed that he was in trouble. Mm And that is terrifying for me and saddening and sickening that you saw four children and believed your life was being threatened. But what I think the role that fiction and art in general can play is by letting us into people's lives so that we actually see the people in front of us, not our ideas of who they are. And the more we hang out in stories about our past, we're sometimes missing opportunities to deal with the muck and mess of where we are.
0: Uh-huh. Now, what are some of the books that taught you that fiction could do that? did you recall read certain books? certain writers that made you think, though no, that is that is possible, what you've said, with fiction?
1: I have to say it, it happened at a distance, meaning it was reading Jane Smiley's book, 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel, and the way in which she almost thinks of fiction as... Uh, the writing of it and the reading of it as a political act made me realize that I'd been doing that all along as a reader, that it really was fundamentally shifting my view. If I read a book of poetry by a woman in Palestine, that has shifted my um, point of view. It's opened my heart just a little bit. It's opened my mind. If I read something about somebody in Newfoundland or Australia, all of this stuff, by letting us sit in people's psyche, every time you do it, you just get a little bit wiser. um, and so, when I heard her put it that way, it's forever shifted for me what it means when I sit down to read a book, or what it means when I sit down to write. It's become an almost um, call to arms, so to speak. I, I feel very strongly about fiction's power.
0: You mentioned Jane Smiley, and some of her books go to these very exotic places, as you mentioned times and places, and you think of her as, a, as an ideal example of a, a novelist who puts your mind in places you don't think you'd be able to put it yourself, if you know what I mean. But it's the same thing, really, to even to go to, I guess it, it's it been a few years since I've read it, but it's Blackwater Rising twenty, thirty years ago, Houston. Yeah, it's, it's, 81. It, it's 81. So, but in its own way, quite a distant time, isn't it?
1: Yes, um, literally. But I think figuratively, I think some of what the themes were tackling, which is on the other side of of one of the great shifts in uh, American consciousness, American political, socio political life, which is the civil rights movement. On the other side of that. What is this new landscape that we're in? And so the book literally took place in 81, and and I was dealing with the immediacy of the movement having ended, and Jay Porter being this character trying to navigate a new country, so to speak. but but beyond the literalness of it, I think I was also working out some of my own feelings about being born on the other side of the civil rights movement, um, being born into um, a tremendous time of transition and trying to understand, um, you know, understand where we are now. It was still to me, even though it was, um, it's a a period piece, so to speak. It, it's still contemporary mm. to me.
0: People talk about the civil rights movement at its very visible peak. People talk about it now. We know what what has it led to now. But that's a time period that, you know, I, outside of that book, I hadn't heard discussed much before. Is this this sort of middle period where it didn't? It seems like people didn't really know where civil rights was at that point. Does that make sense?
1: It very much makes sense. The way that um, I will paraphrase John Kennedy. He said, and he was talking about war, but he said that we would never really have, um, genuine progress or, or genuine peace until the conscientious objector got a parade along with the soldier. Mm. And what I think happened with the movement is that it stopped short without any kind of large cultural swell of gratitude, um, mourning, um, processing it just kind of ended even my father said you know you don't retire my my dad used to say I didn't retire from the movement and get a gold watch mm-hmm. it just all of a sudden there was a cultural shift mm-hmm. and i think what happened for people is people like my parents who are profoundly resourceful and um uh, fain- f- uh frankly of sound mind and great mental health I think <laughs> did <laughs> did a quick shift. They just completely had children who needed to go to school. They needed to get real jobs. They just quickly made a shift and put on a suit and got a Volvo and and went to graduate school and became lawyers and business people. Consciously, or had it happened before they realized? No, it, it was it was a, it was a moment of realizing what we dedicated the beginning of our adult lives to has ended, and we have children and no money and. I have to do something different here. That was what it was for my parents. I think other people on the other side of the movement had psychological breakdowns. Mm. Uh, I think other people um, were in exile, either literally because of charges, or in some kind of an emotional exile, being kind of checked out. But I'm most drawn to periods of transition that I'm always will think about a time period and then I want to come 10 years before it or 10 years after it I almost am never most interested in the height of a war or the height of the 20s or the height I'm always kind of what happened when you were coming in to um, the early 1920s and you were people were just starting to um, come into modernism what was that like mm. um, so I'm always wanting to come at something a little bit from the side
0: The obvious question then is the time of the cutting season by but- years ago what were we 10 years before then and what are we five years before now what's coming in five years
1: well i think the cutting season for me was very much a i mean i hate to use this cheap language of post obama because i don't even know what that means oh, oh, oh. It, but but it, but but i was very much trying to hold the optimism of what this country is capable of against the atrocity of where it has been. Um, I was trying to put those things together and sit in that um, juxtaposition. But to me, I think Obama's president, because I've said for me personally, and I, I do consistently write about race, and I think there are three big events in the American psyche around racial justice. One is emancipation, two is the civil rights movement, and the third one is Obama. And I don't mean that Obama is, that his election is a panacea, um, or, or is the beginning of a post-racial society, which I don't know what that is, or why anybody would want it, and I don't believe in it.
0: It's hard to envision, yeah. It's
1: hard to envision. Plus, I don't understand why that's attractive to people. Why can't we all just be our races and hang out together? I don't know why we have to be post ourselves. Right. Um, but I think, I do think that his election fundamentally interrupted a narrative about this country. Mm-hmm. And so we are all trying to figure out what does it mean to have a black man in office. I think we have discovered it does not mean that automatically Trayvon Martin is safe on a street corner. It doesn't mean that uh, because he's black and we put so much into him as being this great liberal and this, that he's not involved in some crazy stuff and NSA spying and drone strikes. But but it's so um, jarring to suddenly have this optic shift in, in who sits in the White House, that I think we're all kind of questioning what this all means uh, for America.
0: There's a moment in the cutting season when your protagonist who manages this historic plantation, uh, Karen Gray, is thinking back to casting that ballot in 2008. And it reminded me of articles that I would read. There's not so many anymore, but early on, Shortly after Obama's election, there were, there were a lot of articles, people talking on the radio saying, well, sure, he's a, he's a black president, but then they would kind of put him in quotes like, now, hold on, he wasn't descended from slaves. So that's, is he, I mean, sure, he's black, but is he really, Ameri- you know, what we mean by black in America? Uh, I don't, I guess that's, I don't know whether that's subtle or people just stop thinking about it, but was it, was that a controversy or that you thought about, that you saw coming down the pike when you were writing this book or that you had in mind as already sort of roiling when you were writing this book?
1: Uh, No, there were other controversies I was terrified of, uh, a fear that people would think that I was, A, being irreverent, because there's a lot of absurdist humor in the book that I was being irreverent about slavery, or that I was suggesting that now that he's elected, let's all skip off the plantation and everything's great. Uh-huh. Um, but, but to speak to your question about his fundamental blackness and his his flavor of blackness—is
0: that, what, is that what, <laughs> I mean, because reading a book where it's on a plantation and then the same things I was always reading, like, well, is he's not from slavery? So you know, is that does that question mean anything to you? I guess is what I'm asking.
1: No, it does mean something to me, and I think that. I mean, it comes up a lot, and I think it's it's valid to ask. I think it also speaks to um, race as a construct because Barack Obama has chosen to align himself culturally with black American life. Um, not only in, I mean, I think it's cheap to say the spouse that he chose. I mean, that's, that suggests some kind of cynicism on his part. I think he loves his wife. Um, but I'm talking about the basketball. I'm talking about the rap music. I'm talking about that little two-step he does in his walk. He's chosen to be, um, to be seen as culturally black. Uh, an American black. And so that's, that to me makes him, that to me makes him black. I also think that his, his, Af- his deep africanness is almost like black extra i mean i think i think there are certain people more black than black and white Almost. Way. i mean i think there's some folks in mississippi that that's a bigger leap than you know a black guy from alabama I mean, I think for some people, that fundamental one step away from the motherland might have been harder for them. It's oh, even
0: ways. more other, as they say, he's capital even more O. Other, yes.
1: Um other, as they say. And I don't think without his. And I think the, his, 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 his. I was in Indonesia. His, my dad's Kenyan gave white Americans who are crazy and racist a cover for their racism because then it can be about it's an international thing. I'm uncomfortable. Maybe yeah. he's Muslim. If he was just the birth certificate Joe, thing, right? All of that <laughs> stuff. He was. Just from Detroit, they would just be left with the fact that you think he's a nigger. You would have uh-huh. nothing else, but it gave cover for them to say, "Well, no, we're fine with these black. That he's black, but he just wasn't born here. We're fine that he's black, but he's a Muslim. We're fine that he's black, but he's a communist. <laughs> all,
0: all that stuff. He, I, I have I've heard less of that these days, but I'm, maybe I'm not putting my ear to the right part of the ground so, to really. So well, that's that's true. <laughs> but you you take these these. Elements of American history, American culture, and you bring them together under as I say, a kind of a thriller framework and I wonder if those are hard to make compatible if they 're easy to, or if that 's not even a question in your mind? I mean is it this issue of making social and political observations, but getting them into a structure where you are you are writing books with murders and with you know, shifty figures in the corner in the corner of the view, and you know, where people are Paranoid or scared or often with good cause. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I think, first of all, I like thrillers just because I like thrillers. I mean, I like um, I like mysteries. I like being presented with a particular question and trying to solve it. Yeah. I like delving into criminality because I, and this part is just me Um, even as just a consumer, a reader, part of that, I think, I've said before that there's a gendered component to it for me, Mm. that I think part of me playing with scary stories is trying to play out my worst fears Mm. and figure out, could I tell who the bad people are if I'm just walking down the street? And playing it out as a reader and a writer is a way of... Um, illuminating a certain kind of sociopathologic, sociopathological point of view so that I could spot it in real life in a way. Um, but to answer your question about looking at sociopolitical issues through genre and this particular genre, I actually think, and I, I'm not the first person who's said this, that that the crime novel is um, probably where we are in cultural history, one of the greatest spaces to play this stuff out. Mm -hmm. It's a place of, it's a genre of moral relativism. It's a a genre where you're bumping up against um, government, even at its lowest form. Um, Beat cops on the street are representative of government. And so what you end up seeing is, um, and I'm married to a public defender, so I go through trials with him. When a law changes in Sacramento, when a law changes at City Hall in downtown L.A., I see how that reverberates through my husband's clients' lives on the ground. And so I get kind of interested in looking at how does a decision that gets made in D.C. or how does a decision that gets made in your state capital, when it tumbles down to a street corner, what does it look like? And I think that by putting something on the ground like that, it keeps me from being um, didactic, in a way, that I'm not making big speeches. I'm just dramatizing um, the conflict of all of us trying to live together on the planet.
0: Right. And in, in a way, a solution to that question of voters saying, well, what does this really mean to me, this policy A, B, and C, how do I even choose? Will this have any effect on me whatsoever? Well, it'll have an effect on something. I guess that's what you're dramatizing is something that you encounter in life will be affected by choices at every level. Is yeah. that accurate?
1: Yeah, that is very accurate. And, you know, I, you know, to go back to what I was saying before, we're all, you know, I have a, a tremendous amount of affection for the human race. I mean, I think I think I come to writing with that first and foremost, just a fundamental love and just also just a sympathy for all of us just trying to figure it out in our families, at our jobs, on, in our neighborhoods. We're all sharing finite space together. And to me, our base ugliness um, around issues of scarcity and shared space is crime. I mean, that's what it looks like. And so it's a very interesting space to explore when we are kind to each other and when we are cruel and how we are kind to each other and how we're cruel.
0: And it's it's hard to, it's especially... I mean, I mentioned the settings of your books, but we're speaking here in Los Angeles, and whenever people write about crime here in Los Angeles, in the news, it does seem to there seems to always be a racial charge to it. Is that always true in in areas like Houston and Louisiana as well? Is there always are people always drawn toward not just reading about crime, but wondering, well, the, the groups of how are the how are the various groups that I see society made of going to react to this? Are they going to be more ag- antagonized? Are they going to... you know, do, do you know what I mean? There's always that element, it seems like.
1: Well, I think, you know, it's it's our fascination. And I do think that crimes that cross, um, cross cultures, cross race, cross... Borders draw our attention uh, because it's the dialectic. It's two things that are different coming together. Um, And however that conflict plays out, it is kind of interesting to look at. It, It can be revelatory. But I also am interested in just some base level, I decided to, I don't know, stick a knife in somebody's back. Yes, and sure. I'm also like kind of fascinated by just domestic crime. Oh. And just, I'm really, this is gonna make me sound like such a crazy person. Oh. But I am kind of fascinated with like people who just kind of snap oh. and like put somebody in a trunk and just drive around with it for five days. Mm. I'm kind of fascinated by what mind mm. snaps like that. Oh. And w- why do they think they're gonna get away with it? And could I spot this person in the line at Walgreens so I know to get away from them? Like, there is a part of me that is, I mean, I'll say this. I actually lived with, in college, I don't talk about this very much, I, in college, I lived with a compulsive liar mm-hmm. who, looking back, I think was a sociopath. Mm-hmm. Um, she created, this is a crazy story, and I probably should have written about it long ago, she created a stalker that didn't exist, This is the craziest thing. She basically made up this really elaborate story about having been assaulted by a family friend as a child. Mm. She made up a trial that had happened. She told all these details, and then she had him suddenly show up in Chicago, Illinois, where we were in school, and would tell us about all of these sightings of him. And she would send letters to herself that were from him. Now, I literally lived in a single dorm room that was practically the size of a jail cell with this person. And it took me forever to see it.
0: For how long was she doling out these pieces of information? Months. Information.
1: Months. And, and what was so sick about it is that the seed of the story was molestation. What are you going to do with that? You know what I mean? It's, it's one of those things when a woman says, I was sexually assaulted. Nobody really touches that. You just take a—that's what you're supposed to do. You don't assume that people would manipulate and use that. Right. Um, so she, she, it was so crafty the way she got everyone's sympathy, and the, so I say all that to say that that had a deep impact on me. Right. That I was living so close to someone who, when I realized the depth of her lies, it scared the absolute shit out of me. Frankly, yeah. how close I was to someone like that, right. and I want to—I—I kn- look back and go, now where were the red flags and how didn't I see that? I'm just deeply interested in that kind of um, pathology. There's a a book called The Sociopath Next Door. And what is fascinating about it is that the, the author is positing that it's a spectrum. And just as empathy has a spectrum, so does sociopathology. So that it's not like we see on the news that every sociopath is like this college roommate I had or is a serial killer. But some of them might be just some cold sons of bitches that you don't need to be doing projects with at work, you don't need to be in relationships with, you don't need to have them at Christmas dinner. And the the better you are at spotting it, the safer you will be, the happier you will be. And so I'm just kind of fascinated with um, that kind of psychological pathology.
0: What What revealed, what knocked down the house of cards with your roommate? <laughs>
1: um there there was a letter that came this is this is gonna date me this is gonna date me she sent a letter that was cut out of magazine letters <laughs> this is like oh, pre-photo classic. yeah right it was like out of a lifetime movie but but this is when that actually seen, wasn't yet uh, a, a trope it wasn't yet um, a, a cheap ploy
0: but you wouldn't want to use it in a book for example in no, a novel because it would just seem unless too cliched.
1: unless it was in the 1950s yeah. anyway I, you know as sloppy as she was the magazine that she cut cut everything out of. I just had a, I had a gut instinct to tell you the truth and I dug through our trash. <laughs> I dug through our trash and found the magazine that she had cut out of. And then it's like literally out of a lifetime movie and then I started doing like like I went through everything that she had said. She had said that this guy was back in the He was in Chicago looking for her. She'd said the street that he lived on. I started looking up in the phone book, again, dating myself. There was no such street in the entire Cook County. It just, all of a sudden, I started putting it together. But then I was really, like, terrified that I was in a uh, living with someone who was crazy. But I still thought that, I still thought that it was about the molestation. I I still had tremendous sympathy. And I, I talked to a counselor on campus and asked you know we're we're getting off in a weird area here but i mean it's just a very long story but it does it does i really do think that had something to do with me being fascinated by um liars and the fact that they come in all shapes and sizes she was this adorable well-loved super popular girl and i don't know that 50% of what came out of her mouth was true oh
0: my now writing writing a character who lies like that how to, what, to how deep a level do you have to go reconstructing your understanding of how people think so you can accurately portray something like that?
1: Oh, is it frightening to say that it comes kind of natural? Um, you know, and, and it depends on, you know, what type of, you know, quote-unquote bad guy you're writing. I think for me, when I write bad guys, like, the, like you know, the, the Clancy brothers in The Cutting Season, I always think that for every villain, I always ask the question, what is the wound at the center of their behavior. Like, and I work from there that, you know, you know, maybe I am a a Pollyanna who thinks that, um, everyone's bad behavior can be traced back to some, um, initial hurt. But once I have that and I know what that is, it makes it easier for me to understand how people are acting out. And then I make a choice as a writer, which of my quote unquote bad characters are acting consciously, And how many of them are just in their own unconscious junk about stuff? And so that changes how people act. You know, I think that, um, and even the two brothers in that book, I think that Bobby Clancy, his... Acting out I mean he i don't want to give anything away, but I mean his big acting out almost came from an unconscious place, this unconscious rage about loss, what his family lost they're going to lose this plantation, whereas Raymond Clancy, his older brother, seems much more aware of his anger and and what got thrust on him in life, and he didn't ask for the legacy of this plantation and so that you know I'm, I always approach everything from from a place of human psychology and um and I try not to be cheap with people good or bad and not not paint them in broad strokes, but look at a psychological underpinning.
0: Now, do these same rules apply when you're writing screenplays as well as novels, when you're creating characters in either form? You, you're, you're doing the same thing in, simply in a different textual way, or is is there much of a difference?
1: I approach characters the exact same way. I think the difference between scripts and... Well, there's there's the technical difference, and then there's a spiritual difference to writing them. The technical difference is, of course, um, the beauty of scripts is everything is really in the white space on the page. It's everything that isn't being said, because character is what people do, it's not what they say. And it's the schism between what they tell people, but how they really act. So that... To me, scripts and drama come alive in that white space between dialogue. Uh, and it's also so visual and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, the 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 big difference spiritually for me, and I haven't written a script in a minute, but and it has been even longer since I wrote a script of my own volition without somebody asking me or paying me to do it. And that was, I mean, that's like 15 years ago. And that was the first, one of the first scripts I wrote that got a lot of attention. And I went to the Sundance Feature Filmmakers Lab and, um, but being asked to write things for hire, you, there's just like a team of people in the room with you, even when you're by yourself at home, you're, you, you, you the executives are just kind of in the room with you um for better or for worse uh usually for worse that and and they're all extraordinarily well-meaning people but it is a complex system that comes together to make a movie and yours is a simple part in it and not the end in and of itself so you know in that way the the writing is i don't want to say ethereal but you know, when you're writing a novel, that you're, you're, you're in the process of making the final product. When you're perfecting a script, you're just on a journey. You're just at the way beginning of that journey. You know, you don't own what's coming. Um, you, you don't know who's going to be cast. You don't know who's going to be the director. You don't know if you can't get this particular location. And it's, it's this ever-moving, changeable thing that you give it all the love that you have, but you have to hold it very lightly and loosely.
0: I hear these things from screenwriters, and I also hear about how every word, it seems like, in a, in a script has to move the plot forward somehow. And I'll hear these rules about how you can't waste anything. Everything has to be telling in some way, and there's got to be scenes have to start at the last possible moment they could start, and yes. at the first possible moment. It seems like these
1: skills could come in very handy when writing thrillers, just, though. It's the same do. thing almost, right? I, I mean, I wouldn't even just say thrillers. I, th- I, I think, and it doesn't have to just be screenplays. I mean, I, I even think... I think drama is, a, is an incredible art form. And so I, I think novelists should take a playwriting course or try their hand at it or, or do script writing. But I think, you know, you, you, you Dennis Lehane, who has become a, um, a kind of mentor to me, and I've heard him say before that the difference between uh, him or someone who's been writing for a long time and a newcomer is that he also takes a long time to write his way into the scene. He just knows to cut it later. Uh-huh. So it's not that... It's not that he's automatically coming into a scene at its height. He's doing whatever he needs to do as a novelist to get himself there, and then looks back at it and says, "I might not even need that first couple of paragraphs getting into the scene." He
0: shoots the whole thing in yeah. some sense, and then cuts <laughs> it right sad. there. Right. It's also it's it's amazing how the Dennis Lehanes of the world—they write a lot too, like there's a number of books. You know, is, is this is this something that? happens when, you, when you're writing in, in that part of the literary world. Just It seems like the sheer demand readers have for thrillers makes a thriller writer sort of very prolific. Do you envision that happening with you? Will you be, at a few years down the line, will you be ten books deep oh, into man. it? Or?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I think re- readers of thrillers and mysteries are voracious. Yeah. And, and and I think publishers put a lot of pressure on the writers to hurry it up. Mm -hmm. I also think that the more successful the writers get, the more other conflicts in their life fall away and there's more concentrated focus on the work. And frankly, to not be crass about it, but as money comes with that, there's an ability to hire caregivers for your child. There's ability if you choose to to get an assistant to handle the influx of email that you get or to run your schedule, then it makes your laser-like focus into your work.
0: You can only write.
1: You, You know, it just, I think that that can't be discounted. I mean, and, and, you know, to to speak of writing only without talking about money, uh, and 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 what having or not having money does to the writing process, I think is not helpful to anyone, and I think it promotes uh, f- fantasies of of what it is to be a writer. But real life uh, can really deeply get in the way um, of writing. Now, I will say this also: there may just be something about the spirit of thriller writers. I don't know. Maybe we're, I'm, it's not me that's less neurotic, but potentially, if we are not pressed with, or have not been given the very burdensome label of being a literary author, perhaps we don't belabor every pronoun. It's possible that there's freedom in being underestimated. You know, it's possible that in being considered of a lesser genre that we're not carrying on our backs what is the New York Times going to say about this paragraph. There may be a freedom in um, not having to carry what a Jonathan Franzen has to carry. Maybe, maybe not.
0: As we say, your books, they take place in areas with vivid uh, racial backgrounds, shall we say, racial historical backgrounds. And now you mentioned the places you've you've lived, you've been. There's there's Houston, there's Chicago, uh, there's... Even here, I mean, these, those three places alone, Houston, Chicago, <laughs> Los Angeles, I, I don't know, I would say they're very different racial situations in all three. Would you see it the same way?
1: Yes, um... Chicago is one of the most segregated cities I've ever laid eyes on, stepped into. And I say that with tremendous love for the place. It's just the way that it's laid You're out. North or South. Yeah, it is very racially segregated. Um, Houston, it, not so much, actually. Um, and I actually think people um, underestimate the degree to which people of color and white people have been rubbing up against each other in the South for uh, hundreds of years. Um But, of course, what you're dealing with there is the Texas kind of good old boy culture and all that kind of stuff. Um, Los Angeles, to me, frankly, is a – I'm afraid to say this for people beating me up about it. I think – I don't know that I've ever laid eyes on a place as diverse um, as Los Angeles. I, I, I get bored sometimes with dialogue about the racial tension here. Not that it's not real. But sometimes there's a part of me that feels like where the tension is happening, where you have Latinos and black folks, say, in Compton, bumping up against each other. Again, I look at it from the point of view of the dialectic, that it's somewhere in that tension that we're going to figure out some kind of greater truth. That that you see the tension because people are actually living with each other. So you could look at it and say, oh, there's all this kind of racial tension in L.A. Or you could say, there is racial tension because we're trying to figure it, excuse my language, the fuck out. We we are actually living with each other in a way that's not happening in Boston, in a way that's not happening in other places. And so I kind of appreciate um, the struggle. Um, I, I've said this about the American South that... Um, I was very judgy about the deep south, Mississippi, Alabama, you know, I was just, I never want to be anywhere near any of those places, and I had to go to Mississippi, and I, I, I kind of changed my mind while I was there and thought that I was standing on the ground that moved my country forward, that there is no Obama, there is no, there's no me voting here in Los Angeles in the 2000s without going through Alabama, without going through Mississippi. And it made me then take the conflict not as a reminder of how buck-ass wild Mississippi was in the 40s, 30s, 60s, 90s, whatever. And it is true. It is kind of buck-ass wild. What's what's going on there? But in that conflict is a way forward. Mm. So where there is conflict in Los Angeles, uh, I'll kind of take it. Because what I'm seeing, what I'm witnessing is Uh, You know, I live in Glacow Park, Mount Washington, so to me, it's like East Indians, it's Filipinos, it's um, people from El Salvador, it's a mixed group. You know, I don't, I don't live a segregated life in any form. Uh, and I just don't see it. And when I go other places, I'm always struck by being around one color at a time. It's, <laughs> it's, it's odd to me.
0: Yeah, so you don't get, unless you're in certain parts of Los Angeles, one color at a time. And really, the parts that are one color at a time are the least interesting ones in Los Angeles. It seems <laughs> like, I mean, it seems like you would agree with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I would say I would say a Lemert Park is interesting. Um, Although that's that's not even as all black as it used to be. Um, But I do not find a Bel Air that interesting, (laughs) which isn't all white. It isn't all white. Not
0: that much to do there, though. No,
1: no, no. I mean, it's not. They didn't build it for me. It's not for me (laughs) at all.
0: Could you? Is is Los Angeles the kind of place you could set a book potentially?
1: Yes, I kind of have an idea, but I'm a little scared. Right. I'm a little scared, and...
0: What's scary about the prospect of a Los Angeles setting?
1: It, it's... Well, okay, first of all, I didn't grow up here. And the thing I have in mind is period. And so there is a fear that... I'm just going to get it wrong.
0: I'm just going to get happens. it wrong. It happens. It does happen. I mean, we all we remember, we just had the Oscars. You know, a few, a few years ago, we had uh, the movie Crash
1: win, oh, and it was... I hated that movie. And in fact, I just, said, I just said in uh, Los Angeles Magazine, I detested Crash. It is literally some white Westsiders paranoid fever dream about Los mm. Angeles.
0: There is there's that. It's, memory, my memory of it is dim. It did seem a little bit like it was... It seems also quite a bit behind the times, even at the point it came out. I, I was thinking, and I, then I read the screenwriter slash director, he said he got the idea when he got carjacked in what other year but 1991. Yeah, so it was a very, okay. it's kind of a early 1990s vision of Los Angeles on top of what you've just said yeah, as well. And, so, so.
1: and it just doesn't move any dialogue. for It's just kind of ridiculous. But I, you know, so for me, first of all, it's getting it wrong. That, that's the first fear. But the other thing is, there is a delicious Distance for me about writing about the South from Los Angeles, oh. and I don't know what it would be like to write about LA in LA. What? I have no idea because I've never done it before. And I love—I um, I will always write about the American South. It's and I will always write about Texas. It's—it's it's, there is a part of my soul that lives in East Texas. Um, what, what is the relationship
0: between Texas and the the Deep South? Is it? <laughs> uh, I've—I've I've not. I'm not super experienced in that part of the country.
1: Oh, they're kind of like cousins, like second cousins. Um, I mean, the part of Texas that I'm from is literally almost just like Louisiana. I'm from East Texas, so it is the most like... Louisiana, or in Arkansas, or in Alabama, uh, and I, I couldn't even deeply speak to the West. I mean, I've been there; I've visited the West part of Texas, but Texas is its own thing, and it, it is wrong to. Um, it is both of the South and its own thing. Um, it,
0: it, As the tourist board says, like a whole other country. It like.
1: kind of is like its own thing, uh, and the ways that it's like the South are, um, frankly, a lot. Of it, a lot of it's. Political and social junk is a lot of the way it lines up with the South, but a lot of other things about Texas are very, very different um, you know and it 's not a lie that spirit of independence, that spirit of um, outlaw all of that stuff is actually very real
0: what do you, What do you feel there that you don 't feel in uh, Los Angeles or you know california
1: there's a sense for me that when I go home home and I go stand on a red dirt road in rural East Texas, that I am touching my own ancestry, Mm -hmm. that I feel a connection to an agrarian history. I feel a connection to um, people who um, labored ahead of me. Um, I think it kind of brings my 21st century um, neuroses into context. It's a very grounding experience to be reminded um, deeply where I come from, that I come from landowning, cotton picking, vegetable growing, church going, political thinking, intellectual, graduate school going black folks in rural East Texas. That's who I am. And so when I go back there, I feel it all over again. But there is another part of my soul that lives here. Very much so, and I don't think I would, I could be the writer that I am without LA. Mm -hmm. Um, What LA has given me is um, space, and I mean that literally and figuratively, that it, uh, it literally is a space to behold it's just stunning and a big part of my writing process is to walk the hills of Mount Washington And kind of figure out what's going wrong in my story. What you can kind
0: spend of some serious time walking? Those yes,
1: stories. yes I walk those hills and I look out on mountains and I try and figure stuff out in my story but the figurative space in Los Angeles is that, you know, this is a place... You know what I said before about thriller writers possibly being outside of the pressure of a canon? That's how I feel about L.A., that we're outside of a kind of East Coast canonical way of looking at art.
0: Right, and there's a heritage of crime writing here that yes, goes Yes, there's a
1: deep heritage of crime writing. But for me, mainly what I feel is freedom, that I don't have to follow an East Coast script about what constitutes art. Um, I get to kind of figure it out on my own. And I just, um, there's a part of me that, there's something I get here that I don't get back in Texas. That's why I'm living here. That's why I'm not going back to live there. Um, I'd love to have land there. I'd love to be able to go back to Texas. But um, this is where I choose to raise my kid. I, I can't give any greater stamp of approval on L.A. than the fact that I'm raising an An Angelino. I mean, I never thought I would utter those words in my life, but she is a California girl to her core. Oh my!
0: Now I've heard you may be returning in future novels to the world of uh, Jay Porter, the the anxious hero of uh, of, of Blackwater Rising. What what made you want to revisit him?
1: Oh, I tried not to. I tried really hard not to. I was so anti-sequel. I don't even like the word sequel. I just, it just connotes trouble. It just you didn't con- want to
0: be writing a Jay Porter novel, no, a, Jay Porter novel to, a Jay Porter novel, a Jay Porter
1: novel. No, and the fear was that if I keep hanging out with him in Houston, it, damn, every time I go to Houston, I have to write about Jay. I mean, <laughs> oh. I, I, so I was a little afraid of that, but also just, you, it's just a setup, a sequel. People are going to have so much shit to say about it, but...
0: You don't want to turn into a thriller machine like no, some thriller writers do.
1: Yeah, well, two things happened to me. One, I read Scott Turow's book, Innocent, mm. and, which is the 25-year-later, quote-unquote, sequel to Presumed Innocent. Mm. And he took the very thing that I worry about with a sequel, which is, seriously, how many times can Rusty Savage be uh, accused of a crime <laughs> he didn't commit and be on trial? You know, how many times can that happen in a lifetime? He took that, and instead of and and use that to say something larger about human nature and the mistakes we repeat so he ended up saying something about human psychology, and he let his character age, and he let his character fall into the same mistakes. Um, The stuff that he didn't deal with in the first book, you're just going to repeat it. If you don't deal with it, you're going to repeat it. And so that kind of told me, oh, you could actually grow with somebody. You could actually say something about the arc of a man's life. Um, And then the other thing that happened is I knew I wanted to write a story about an election in Houston. And the truth of the matter is, as much as I tried to think of other characters through which I could tell the story, Jay Porter is still alive in my fictional world. And he just was the best person through which to tell the story. I mean, and I I, I trust me, I tried to, to fight it. But but there's something about him that makes him a great vehicle for investigating late 20th century change mm. political and racial change either because of his past either there's just a lot of reasons why he's a great person to explore that with mm. and so once I gave into it I really gave into it um and he's an older man it's not like it picks up you know the next year even he's a much older man um so in that sense I don't think it's a classic sequel but um and I'm terrified I, I don't know what the hell anybody's gonna say about it I'm um, frankly um I'm frankly terrified.
0: There's a certain sense in which you want to please the people who are already Jay Porter fans too. Like, what do they expect? That weighs on an bit, right?
1: It, it it's less. Oh, excuse me. I, I mean, it's less. That I worry about um, pleasing as pissing them off. I'm actually ah, yes. infinitely more... out of the coin. I'm infinitely more afraid of angering people than actively trying to please them. I very much wrote a book that I totally enjoy, and but the fear is that I will have made choices that people... Huh. What oh. makes a reader angry? Oh, I've had... <laughs> I mean, the ending of the cutting season oh my god It's, it's um, people have very strong reactions pro or negative in the same room I've had women argue at book clubs oh um, about the ending that some people feel strongly that it was the appropriate ending and some people feeling rage um, that it isn't the appropriate ending that's what you want
0: though at a certain point you want the argument to erupt some people think it's exactly the way it should have been some people think it's exactly not Then you know you've written something that gets to there's a reaction you, you made happen
1: I think if I were a stronger person, I would see it that way. Oh. And I think if if people were fighting about things that weren't so racially charged, oh, okay. that you know the fear for me about the cutting season is that i mean i remember calling my sister while i was writing it because i was saying i was trying to say so many things about where i wanted my country to go and what i wanted barack's uh, election to mean that i worried that people were going to think i was some kind of uncle tom or something so i remember calling my sister saying do you think i'm an uncle tom i mean this is you know is this oh is this going to piss off black people that i'm saying there's a part of our slave narrative that we would do well to not hold on to so tightly so that we might see what what comes next? Mm. Um, is that dangerous to say? And I, ha- you know, there are people who get, you know, angry that if you let go of history, if we forget where we come from, um, you're somehow letting white folks get away with stuff. Mm. Um, you know, so I, I was just, a- I-, I think arguments from readers. For me, for the stuff that I write, because it's racially charged and it's charged around issues you brought up before, is Obama black enough? So if I get in a room with people and somebody asks me, what's up with Jay Porter and all the white girls in his life? You know, it has a kind of, I I mean, I laughed when I, (laughs) I did the same thing you did. I laughed. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, do I have a thing with Jay and white girls? I mean, I don't think I do.
0: Open the book again. "Hmm." (laughs) You
1: know, I think because the stuff I write is charged, or because I'm profoundly sensitive, one or the other, Mm -hmm. that, um... You know, I hope that, you know, the, the, this is all about communication. And so anytime you try to communicate something that doesn't land or, and not that you own people's interpretation of your work, it's it's their experience, it's their quiet time in their home, in the library, wherever they're reading. And I don't own that and I don't get to dictate it. But But I think we're all doing this to say, for one moment, see me. See me. The way I see me, um, you know, the hope in 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 this shared art form is that there's understanding between two people, and so wherever that doesn't happen, it you know it doesn't always feel that good, you know, because you're trying to I think with the art bring people closer. That if something you wrote is misinterpreted or is not received in the spirit in which you intended it, you know it can get it can get it can get uncomfortable.
0: Mm. So did we say that whether a character, a people, or a country? If it forgets its history, mm-hmm. it repeats it. But if it also holds it, if it clenches it too tight, it also repeats it. There's there's a, there's some there's yes. some level of grasp that needs to be maintained. That's not either of those ends. It's not away with it, and it's not clen- uh, clinging to it. I guess sort of blanket. Yeah.
1: That's in fact, it's interesting that you use the word blanket because when I remember when when Obama was um, when I it was the summer of two thousand eight when I kind of knew. He's going to be the Democratic nominee. And then I kind of was also thinking, I think this man is about to be president. And I felt like a security blanket. And I don't want to use secure. Maybe I don't mean that way. There was a crutch, a blanket, a familiar narrative about being black in America that was about to be disrupted. And I didn't know what that was going to mean. And I started having panic. And I'm not having panic because I don't want him to get elected. I'm not having panic because I think he's going to be shot. I'm having panic because what the hell is this going to mean? What country are we all going to be walking into on November 5th or whatever the day was after that election? Is it going to be fundamentally different in the sense I'm not going to be able to find my way in it or worse, is it going to be exactly the same? What is it going to be? It was so scary to be without the familiar script of American racial life. And so the fear for me um, and that question you asked about which parts of our history must we hold onto and which parts would we do well to hold more loosely. I don't know. And the writing of the cutting season was to explore um, to explore that question. I do know that specifically in terms of media representation, I, I have to say, you know, um, thinking of the Oscars and 12 Years a Slave winning, um, we just have to have both. I, I don't mean to take that story away. That is incredibly meaningful. And when I heard that that story is going to start making the film is going to go on a school tour, that is incredible. That's fantastic, but that cannot be it. My God, black people have done more things in this country besides be butlers and slaves. Jesus Christ, it just can't be it. And the if we keep hanging out in stories about our past and don't leave space to um, hang out in stories that address our complicated present, we don't get better. We don't uh, get more understanding, um, you know. I, I joked with a friend of mine. I said, "It's August Osage County every Christmas at my house." How come there aren't stories like that for Latino families and Korean families? Or we can't just hang out in the narrative of black struggle and 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 like a phoenix rising? And that is an important. Uh, narrative, but but it's so deeply entrenched in the American psyche that I worry that there isn't space for anything else. I want to say it was The Atlantic that wrote that beautiful piece about why uh, Fruitvale Station was difficult for. And I don't know. We're onto movies now, but why Fruitvale Station was difficult for Academy voters to contemplate because it was about a black. A black man's life to, uh, holding the contradiction of a black man who is both a felon and a good guy. But that's where we are. You're going to find some black men who are felons and are wonderful people. But the more we normalize that, see that, do all of that, I go back to God help us. Maybe Michael Dunn was just crazy as all get out and, and racist and all that. But maybe also he was not exposed, um, to enough of black life to understand he had no reason to be afraid of four black children.
0: I've been speaking here in the Silver Lake Library with Attica Locke, author of the novels Blackwater Rising, and The Cutting Season, more recently, with more Jay Porter to come. So, we hear, Attica, thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Thanks a lot.
0: This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or at, with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.